hello once again. Uh, at least that's assuming that this is not the first commentary track in this set that you're listening to. If that is the case, then it's hello for the first time. Um, like on quite a few of the discs in this set, uh, this is Tom Mess you're listening to, and I am the author of the book Iron Man, the cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. A book that came out, ooh, uh, as I record this, 15 years ago already, and uh, has in the meantime gone out of print. Uh, well, sadly, of course. Perhaps there will be a new edition in the, in the future at some point. Expanded, perhaps, who knows? Any publishers out there? Let me know. Um, in any case, uh, uh, it's, I still get to do lovely, wonderful jobs like this one. And I'm very glad to have been asked by Arrow to provide quite as many commentaries for this wonderful Blu-ray set as they asked me to do. Um, the opening shot, we're watching Kotoko, film from 2012. The opening shot, immediately, immediately reminiscent of two earlier films. Um, one is Vital, which also had its scene of dancing on the beach. And, and also a snake of June, because of that general blue tint of the image in this scene. Uh, both films, I think, uh, laid the groundwork for uh, for Kotoko in various ways that I will go into. Now here there's this very interesting jump cut um, and then the sound of uh, screams, the sudden disappearance of this little girl. Um, enigmatic sort of suggests something that might have occurred um, in the childhood of our protagonist Kotoko. Of course then uh, the, the implication is that uh, there's a, a source of trauma there that most likely influenced uh, her condition as we as we get to know it in the film. Um, that scene and the jump cut especially also evokes something else, uh, particularly because of the timing, uh, the timing when the film was made and released was uh, not so long after uh, the uh, terrible Tohoku earthquake and uh, the tsunami in particular that happened right afterward, which uh, affected, obviously affected all Japanese and all, all, inhabitant, all inhabitants of Japan. Um, but affected uh, it's uh, the country's artists and uh, uh, arts works and cinema notably and so this the yeah you can say this the, the specter of the tsunami haunts kotoko i would say uh, it's not it, it's never it's never clearly said it's never strongly indicated, certainly never more strongly than in that opening shot. But yeah, um, it was a, it was a, a period where uh, everyone was suffering. Everyone had a really tough time. And I think everyone in Japan more or less could somehow empathize with a character such as Kotoko. We've been, uh, we've been thrown almost immediately into 
the trouble that she suffers, this, uh, this idea of seeing doubles all around her, one, one every day, and let's say a, a normal kind person, and the other is like the evil, almost like the evil twin. Straight after that, this, uh, this scene of uh, self-cutting, um, Kotoko's words of that this reminds her of being alive, the pain reminds her of being alive. It's a sign that she still lives. And that, of course, pulls uh, this film completely in li into line with, with everything that preceded it within Tsukamoto's filmography, all the way back to, uh, to, the, to the first Tetsuo, Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, where that theme is simply, was essentially <laughs> the, the main motif of that movie. Uh, instinctively, as I, as I mentioned and pointed out in the commentary for Tetsuo the Iron Man. But this, uh, this uh, feeling of um, uh, a numbness and then waking yourself up, notably through, uh, through pain, uh, through physical suffering, whether it's uh, a transformation into a, a hunk of living metal scrap or whether it's uh, you know stepping into the boxing ring and getting yourself beaten up completely uh, and unrecognizably uh, we'll get back to that in this film also um, or whether it's um, like in snake of june a little bit later uh, opening yourself up to your own your own repression self-repression not doing what you truly want to do so Kotoko just really fits into that completely, um, and perhaps in a, in, a, in a more direct and more real way than anything that has gone before. Um, of course, Kamoto is known as a maker of, of science fiction films, genre movies, um, someone who makes movies that that you know portray things that can't really can't happen in real life but Kotoko is of course a, a very major exception to that and it's really interesting that uh, the, the motifs and the themes and and the preoccupations and concerns that he deals with in his films remain present remain uh, recurring and remain powerful regardless of whether he gives us um, a cyberpunk sci-fi movie or a realistic drama such as Kotoko. Um, so it's, uh, I've pointed out the idea of uh, looking at Tsukamoto's filmography as an evolution. And of course, uh, the 10 films in this set allow you to, uh, to trace that evolution. But really, uh, with each film that I that I'm now re-watching and, and recording these commentaries for, I'm truly, truly amazed at how coherent and how cohesive Tsukamoto's body of work is. I mean, you could start at any any given point in Tsukamoto's career, and you know you don't even have to trace it chronologically. You could start at any point, and uh, from there on, begin to draw parallels with earlier and later film. Um, and in doing so, you'll, that will reveal 
new ties between the films that perhaps you may not immediately have spotted if you did everything, you watched everything chronologically or if um, you're a long time Tsukamoto viewer that saw his films as they came out in whatever form they came out, whether it was at festivals or um, theatrical distribution or VHS or DVD or whatever. whatever. It's uh, just really wonderful to have the opportunity to do that now with this box set. Uh, of course, many of his films have been released internationally, uh, including in North America, uh, numerous times, as I said. You know, they've, they've been shown at festivals. Some of them had proper theatrical releases. Um, many came out in the era of VHS, then came out again on DVD. But it was always separate works, understandably, logically. That's, that's normally the standard of how you distribute films. But now we have this really amazing box set that allows us to uh, look at his work. I mean, it's not his complete work, but nevertheless, um, it's, uh, I think he's made 16 films and there's 10 of them in this set. Um, so that's really allowing us to uh, to delve into Tsukamoto's quite unique body of work. And then as a result of that to uh, see um, connections, see uh, coherence where perhaps we didn't spot it before, or perhaps we did spot it before but we were not, we're not aware of exactly how well done it is, how, how coherent and cohesive it is. So I, for one, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy with uh, the appearance of this Blu-ray set. Another thing is that you look at the set design. Just now, the scene with uh, the, the inside Kotoko's apartment and the, ch the child's room and the play set and everything. Um, all those hanging garlands, the, 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 the strings of lights, uh, the use of color, um, the toys that are, that are put together as if it were a, like a ready-made display. In quite a few cases it was uh, the lead actress Coco herself who contributed a lot of elements to, uh, to the set design. She's even credited as the set designer. Um, but what it reminds me of is a, a short film that Tsukamoto made with his son. Um, this was actually just after, uh, and at the moment as I record this, I don't know if that little short film is actually included as, a, as an extra in this set. So um, if it is, check it out. <laughs> and if it is not, then uh, I will now tell you about it. Um, uh, it, was a, it was a short film commissioned, it's a few minutes long commissioned by the Venice Film Festival. Venice, uh, where many of Tsukamoto's films have had their international premiere, including Kotokon, which premiered in the uh, Horizons section of the 2012 edition of Venice and uh, won the grand prize, the best film prize in that section. Um, and I think it was the year after that uh, that Tsukamoto was invited to make this short film 
uh, with the theme of making films for the future. And so he, Tsukamoto decided to make a movie together with his son. And uh, in that movie they, uh, they use uh, toys and uh, you know, self-homemade cardboard sets um, and uh, stuff like, yeah, strings of lights, etc. and, and, and hand-painted uh, hand-painted objects very, very similar to uh, the set design of, of Kotoko's room in this film. Um, the ties don't stop there because uh, both uh, those remind me of uh, something that Skamoto made uh, back in 1988. And if you've listened to my audio commentary for The Adventure of Denshu Kozo, um, I talk about it over uh, on, on there, uh, which is uh, a, a short film, uh, like a 40-45 minute uh, part film, part documentary, part uh, um, showreel called Skamoto 10,000 Channel, uh, which is sort of like a, a compendium of highlights of what Skamoto had done up until that point, culminating in the, the, the trailer for Tetsuri Iron Man, which he had just completed. And uh, so this Tsukamoto 10,000 channel uh, was made to uh, to be screened together with The Adventure of Denju Kozo after the latter had won um, the grand prize at the PR Film Festival and was then uh, subsequently touring cinemas across Japan. And one of the, the, the sections in that uh, film 10,000 channel is uh, a little animation sequence that well it's not really kind of animation it just uses cutouts that Skamoto with his hands um, you know moves around in front of the, the the camera while doing the voices himself which is exactly the same style that uh, he and his son used on that little film I think uh, that the title of that one was for the future and um, in between those two there is Kotoko connecting forward, you know, and, and looking back. So, obviously what I'm, what I'm talking about now is a, a very uh, esoteric, a very, <laughs> it's a very tiny detail within the, the, the filmography of Tsukamoto, and it's certainly not any major thing, but it's just to illustrate how, up to what level, um, this coherence and cohesiveness of, of Tsukamoto, uh, Tsukamoto's films and his body of work operate. The film, as you can see, is a shot uh, on digital, um, as were all of Tsukamoto's films from Hayes onwards, um, which is, of course is a, is a great, compared to working with film, it's a, it's a great way to economize if you're a super independent filmmaker like Tsukamoto is, who often essentially pays for his films himself, you know, borrowing bits here and there, but um, essentially the, the, the money up front always comes from his own company. 
So if you can uh, save uh, a little bit here and there, that's, uh, that's a really wonderful thing. And it obviously helped, I think, Tsukamoto uh, a lot as an independent filmmaker to um, be able to shoot digitally and no longer need to deal with, with film-based material. And it also works really well for uh, these kinds of, you know, intimate, intimate stories where you're basically constantly inside the private life of, of one particular person. And uh, in that case, using video creates this sense of, uh, of immediacy, of nearness. Of course, that's, that's simply a, a style choice. You know, you can strongly stylize uh, your images with the same, using the same digital camera that is used here. Um, for example, um, you know, Tetsuo the Bullet Man shot on the same camera and looks really quite different. And the same again goes for uh, Fires on the Plane. And the same again goes for Killing. So in this case, in, in Kotoko, Tsukamoto uses it, I think, quite uh, consciously to, uh, to create this idea of almost semi-documentary semi nearness. Interesting contrast in the depiction of the, the, the personality of Kotoko, the scenes where she is with men and uh, those are the only scenes essentially where she can uh, radiate strength in a way that's very interesting the amazing contrast between uh, those scenes and the other scenes especially now coming so quickly after uh, that amazingly traumatic scene where she completely loses control of herself and cannot, you know, cannot deal with the pressures, the simple pressures of uh, raising a child. So the actress who plays Kotoko, um, Koko, is uh, uh, normally a pop singer um, whose uh, songs have inspired Skamoto in the past. Um, she provided the theme song to, uh, to his movie Vital, a song called Blue Bird. And um, after that, Skamoto worked with her uh, as part of uh, a series, kind of an omnibus film where I think five directors were invited to um, make short films based around her, one of her songs. Um, as a result of that project, uh, they, they, they stayed in touch and Tsukamoto talked uh, with her a lot. And it was through uh, those various conversations that he developed what would become the script for Kotoko and uh, in quite a departure from his regular style of working very, very independently. 
he would send the script to Coco uh, for her to uh, to give her opinions on and her her agreements with or disagreements. And if she disagreed, then he changed things, which is very unusual. It's come out of normally does exactly what he wants and doesn't necessarily listen to uh, other perhaps more compromising ideas. And so if you look at uh, the closing credits, for example, you see that essentially they suggest that the movie was made by Tsukamoto and Koko. They both uh, share a, a lot of credits. As I said before, Koko is, for example, credited for set design. And they're both credited for, uh, for the screenplay, etc. So it's a collaborative, it's a collaborative effort that, um, for that reason, also kind of stands alone within Tsukamoto's filmography. And it does feel to me, for all its, for all its um, similarities and connections with uh, with other films in his filmography, it's it's continued to feel for me as a kind of uh, a film apart in a way. It's also one of the toughest, I think, toughest viewing experiences in, in, in Tsukamoto's body of work, which is saying something, because he's certainly not, a, you know, his films are not the easiest films to watch in general, they're very, very intense. Um, but this to me has always been the, the one, well, always, it's not that old, but uh, it continues to me to feel like the, ones, the one that is the toughest to watch. And it's not just for um, like the depictions of suffering or the depictions of uh, abuse, uh, be that abuse of others or self-abuse. It is also, I think, um, well, maybe toughest is a, is, a is a strange word in that respect, but um, you know, there's, a, there's extended music scenes where essentially uh, the camera fixes in one take on Coco singing and performing. And in those shots, it feels to me, like I said, it's a film that that's what makes it feel to me as, a, as kind of a, a film apart. And that's, those are the moments where you can really see that, you know, this is a film made in collaboration. And that means that at times the collaborator has a stronger influence than Tsukamoto himself, perhaps. Although apparently those scenes and shooting them in that particular way was Tsukamoto's own idea. But uh, in doing so and remaining relatively uh, um, modest, a relatively modest presence as a filmmaker, um, that allowed Kokon to um, make her imprint on the film even more than, than she already does in the, in the, let's say, the more narrative scenes. One of the sons, of course, we now hear uh, we've arrived in Okinawa um, uh, in the family home of Koko's older sister, or Kotoko's older sister, I should say, now taking care of her son. There's uh, two other boys, and one of them is played by Ryugo Nakamura, who um, 
became a bit of a, a minor celebrity um, on, at the age of 14 when he made his directorial debut with a movie that in English called The Catcher on the Shore. It's a film that eventually got uh, shown fairly widely in Japan, but also outside at, at various film festivals. And he was a young man who had started making uh, little movies and videos even in elementary school and has continued to do so uh, to the present day. And he too was one of the filmmakers involved in um, um, that compendium, that omnibus film uh, centering around Coco's songs. And he too is from Okinawa, just like Coco herself. And uh, with uh, when he started becoming known, they uh, they they met up and uh, got along very well. This has uh, led to a, a continuing uh, working relation. Hardly a most typical example of. Uh, you know how famous people collaborate within within the Japanese entertainment industry, but then again, both of them are Okinawa-based, uh, primarily uh, from Okinawa, so that's already marginal in itself. And inevitably, uh, Ryugo Nakamura's films deal with you know, the reality of, uh, in a in a very imaginary way. I mean, he has a lot of. Um, he has a lot of, uh, uh, of fantasy, uh, but they deal also very much with, uh, with the reality of, of life in Okinawa. Um, that makes his films, if you're interested in uh, the situation of Okinawa, of course, inevitably there's the American uh, bases, the base of the American armed forces there, and the problems that those cause. Um, but if you look at his films, um, you see a, a much more nuanced, uh, multifaceted view of life in Okinawa, including the base issue, than what is generally portrayed in the media, including the media in Japan. So Tsukamoto had shot um, Vital, or at least part of uh, his film Vital, on Okinawa already. Um, he said that Okinawa had been a, a, a source of fascination to him ever since he was a, a child and saw a, a photo book about the islands. And the islands uh, that make up the, the Ryukyu uh, the Ryukyu uh, archipelago, of which Okinawa is the main island, and usually we call the whole set of islands Okinawa, um, are the much more southerly location than much of Japan, and as a result, uh, the, historically the culture there is quite different. Uh, the climate is quite different, and as a result, vegetation, etc., is also quite different and it tends much more toward the tropical. 
So if you're from the mainland Japan, it's uh, to know that that is also Japan. Um, I imagine that would be, you know, especially if you're a child getting to know this and getting to know your own country, that would be quite eye-opening and quite fascinating. So it's Kamoto held on to that fascination um, all the way up to and beyond making vital and vital he made there in 2004, so eight years before Kotoko came out. And in, in more than one respect, Vital is a, is a predecessor to uh, Kotoko alongside Snake of June. I mentioned on my co in my commentary over uh, Snake of June that that film signaled, uh, in, in my view, uh, a turning point in, in Tsukamoto's work. Um, a turning point that incidentally overlaps with him becoming becoming a father as well as, as losing his own mother. Uh, so perhaps those events made him very um, aware of um, the preciousness of, of human life and the preciousness of the human body, the fragility of the human body. And uh, this made him decide to look more directly at the human body and its uh, many mysteries, in a way. Um, so, whereas the films up to, leading up to Snake of June, um, were very much about covering up the body, whether it's in the, uh, you know, whether it's covering it up in, in metal and whether covering it, it is covering up in the bruises or, uh, or injuries or mutation. From Snake of June onwards, um, he deals with the, the, the revealing the body and looking at the body as it is. So Snake of June, then on to Vital, then on to Kotoko, all of those films deal with uh, awareness of the human body and the human mind as well, uh, for their own worth, their own inherent value. Um, and then with Snake of June, of course, it's, you know, it really focuses on, on the naked skin, uh, largely focuses on the outside, the appearance of the human body, but um, also treats with, uh, deals with uh, illness and how that might change that physical appearance of the naked skin and whether that makes any difference to our identity as human beings. Um, in that case, does the fact of having to lose a breast due to cancer surgery change, fundamentally change you as a, as a person, not only in your own view, but mostly and especially in the view of the people you share your life with, particularly your, your life partner. And the vital, which came fairly shortly after Snake of June, which is already saying something, um, 
continues be, continues from there and goes beyond the skin, um, going into the body and wondering about, firstly, the mind, but primarily uh, human personality, our consciousness as individuals. The question of what is what is consciousness exactly? Does it exist as a separate thing? What is its location in the body, um, even in the, the the lifeless body, since that film deals with dissection a lot. Um, dissection is an interest that he uh, had also developed from uh, some time ago when he uh, visited the house of Alejandro Hodorowsky in Paris in 1992 on his promotional tour for Tetsuo II. Hodorowsky showed him uh, a small uh, space or room uh, under, under the stairs and that was uh, Hodorowsky's uh, meditation room. And the only object in that meditation room was a book on, uh, on dissection. And at the time Kamoto said he, uh, he could only uh, uh, take a short peek at it before it, before it became too much for him and he put it away and he said, oh, thank you very much, That's, that'll be enough for now. Um, that was Kamoto in 1992. Uh, flash forward to uh, some 12 years, no, some 10 years later. Um, after a snake of June, he is uh, interested, becoming interested in looking beyond the human skin, having already dealt with uh, illness in a snake of June, he's going to look inside the human body now. And he took a trip to, uh, to uh, Italy where uh, a retrospective of his films was programmed. And during that trip he visited uh, the La Specola uh, Natural History Museum in Florence and looked at uh, Da Vinci's, you know, the Da Vinci's anatomical drawings. And that gave him a kind of um, a lead on how to deal with, how to continue to deal with this issue of the body, of the mind, and the location of, of consciousness, uh, our personality, how it functions and why it functions. And his feeling was that, you know, if we want to understand the universe, if we want to understand the big questions of, that we as human beings have eternally been fascinated by, then like Da Vinci, you can look at the smallest part in order to understand that. You know, the body is like a microcosm. The body itself is a universe. Um, now, of course, the you know the pre <coughs> the pre Snake of June film, so to speak, suggests uh, essentially the same thing. Um, in, in those films, the change, even though the change was uh, was on the surface, came always came from inside. And so, even those films already uh, are aware of and suggest the the, the at least the dormant. Uh, presence or existence of an inner inner life force in every individual. Yeah, remember in Tetsuo II, where uh, um, the guy, the metal fetishist, uh, sends out his minions to shoot these uh, like metal pallets into 
people's bodies, which then supposedly provoke or cause the mutation into uh, of the flesh into metal. And then gradually he and we realized that it has nothing to do with those pellets. And in fact, that the, the, the mutation that happened in uh, that happens in the protagonist of that film uh, has come entirely from inside his mind and inside his body. So there you go again. <laughs> uh, more more connections to be drawn between uh, uh, Tsukamoto's films, no matter where you start in his filmography. Um, but yeah, so Vital goes into the human body and talks about consciousness and personality and the location of that. And of course, from there, it's a small step towards talking about and, and being interested in, uh, in mental health issues and, and interested in, in the workings of the mind. And uh, if you're up to speed with uh, Tsukamoto's filmography, um, then you will know that in between Vital and Kotoko, he made the two Nightmare Detective films. And those very much fit into that development, uh, even though you may tend to see them as, as sort of like films for hire, uh, you know, sort of just, they're like semi-superhero movies almost, about, uh, yeah, literally a detective that can, who can descend into people's nightmares and into their minds. Um, but that essentially just makes the, the character a superpowered therapist, really, who heals people by literally entering their minds. So Nightmare Detective 1 and 2, um, again, despite being uh, semi-films for hire, they were based on, on Tsukamoto's original ideas, but financed by an outside company for the most part, which is one reason why they are not included in this set, but that's another point. Um, Nevertheless, they fit. Uh, they fit perfectly into this gradual evolution, as I keep calling it, of Tsukamoto's preoccupations and motifs. And the Kotoko uh, just is uh, the, the next step in the sense that um, it's entirely uh, it's entirely realistic. You know, there's nothing supernatural in Kotoko. There's nothing fantastical or uh, science fiction-like at all. I've mentioned uh, Vital a number of times already, but to me, the Kotoko feels like, again, <laughs> you know, this is, I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself, but as I said, even though I said earlier it feels like a film apart, but at the same time it feels in a number of ways like a continuation, a semi-direct continuation of, of Vital. Um, one notable interesting point is uh, the very similar appearances of uh, Koko, our lead actress here, and Nami Tsukamoto, who plays uh, Ryoko, the, the ballerina, the deceased ballerina of, uh, of Vital. And uh, it's 
you know, we can safely assume, I think, that Coco was a major inspiration on Kamoto's creation of that character. And, and certainly her look, uh, Coco, for example, started out as a ballet dancer before becoming uh, kind of by chance uh, a singer. Uh, and so uh, Ryoko Invital is a ballet dancer. They have that very similar wiry, um, almost emaciated physique. Um, if you look closely in, in this film, you can see that on the um, Coco's left upper arm, there seems to be a kind of faded tattoo, which is like a stylized flower motif. It doesn't play any part in, in the narrative of the film, so I only assume it's, it's Coco's own tattoo. It looks more like a, like a form of scarification, which would make sense given the, uh, the themes of, of uh, this story of Kotoko and how they're based on, uh, on Coco's real-life experiences, because she did uh, have episodes of seeing doubles um, and uh, had similar symptoms to uh, uh, the ones that are uh, that are displayed by uh, by the character of Kotoko which is not to say that they're exactly the same character you know, exactly the same person but in any case uh, that that uh, that little like decorative scarification there is doubled by a tattoo on the left upper arm of, of the character Ryoko in Vital. Uh, there it's a, a tattoo of a, of a blue bird, uh, which uh, then subsequently echoes the title of the theme song that Coco made for Vital, which was Blue Bird. And, uh, and then again, the Okinawa setting is also something that is, that is identical between um, Vital and Kotoko. There is the centrality of, of dance, dance sequences. Uh, now I've pointed this out, uh, especially in terms of the, the earlier films of, of Tsukamoto in Tetsuo the Iron Man, there's quite a bit of dance performance. In fact, there was originally even more dance performance than there is in the, in the finished version. Um, in Gemini also, Gemini uh, finds a lot of its inspiration in terms of uh, uh, character and costume design, as well as uh, uh, choreography and body movement from uh, from Buto dance, the so-called uh, the dance of the underground, um, in which uh, dancers dyed their body white and created choreography uh, based on very kind of grotesque, almost un in in unhuman movements. So that plays a major role in Gemini, so dancing and choreography has been a part of uh, Tsukamoto's work to all the way back to the very beginning. Um, but uh, the, the, there's definitely similarities, uh, most strikingly, between um, Phyto and Kotoko in this regard. Also because the dancing often takes place on, on the beach in Okinawa. This scene of uh, Mr. Tanaka discovering 
Kotoko and believing that she's committing suicide and I mean who, who wouldn't <laughs> is perhaps the the funniest scene in the whole film not in the least because of the way it's shot this one take uh, image uh, most of it taking most of the action taking place and you know <laughs> and not either outside the frame or in parts that are not visible behind that wall and then the little parts that stick out and uh, her concern for her towels it's a very funny scene and uh, it's it's the kind of uh, slightly relief from tension that a film like this needs in order to be as effective as it as it is it just wouldn't work if you constantly bombard audiences with really intense scenes and harrowing moments and, and uh, constant shaky camera movements. So you need the opposite from time to time in order to make those uh, scenes and sequences more, most effective. Rather like uh, the... the thematics in, in uh, Scamato's work. You need the negative to, in order to appreciate the positive to keep the balance in life. As I pointed out in my commentary to Tokyo Fist that also goes for creating the form and the narrative structure of a film. The change in Scamotto's uh, work that I signaled from Snake of June onwards also has uh, resulted in the increased presence of nature in Scamotto's films. Uh, in Snake of June itself, uh, of course, there's the, the, the rainy season and uh, the resulting growth of life, of vegetation, even in, in the concrete environment of the city. Um, the idea as there is, as well suggested at least, is uh, finding some way to, to at least recognize that we live in touch with and as part of nature, no matter how uh, small or temporary it may be. And this is something he's only continued to develop since. And of course, then the, uh, the the choice to start shooting films in Okinawa, which is very verdant, very, as I said, quite tropical, very green, um, really brought that to the surface. And as it started to play a, a larger role, it started to take on the function of uh, of contrast in a way um, to the all too human foibles of the characters you know nature as a, as a neutral constant presence whose presence because it's so constant and neutral is something where very e we very easily overlook um, to our detriment so we need to remind ourselves of these facts from time to time and uh, also uh, nature's permanence entails uh, the transience of, of human life. Um, you know, putting, uh, placing things into a certain degree of perspective. 
which helps to give a, a degree of weight to uh, um, what we see portrayed on the screen in terms of uh, the characters and, and what they go through. And I remember, because I was there on set for a while, um, Tsukamoto's pleasure of shooting a large part of Vital uh, in Okinawa, on Okinawa, I should say. Um, I think for him, uh, very much he needed also that change in, uh, in his life as well as in his work. Um, at that point, as I said, you know, it, it overlaps with certain changes in his life, becoming a father, losing his mother. Uh, it also connected to a, a, a beginning awareness of, of aging, getting older, and therefore a greater awareness of his own body and the inescapability of, of um, the transience of human life, but the inescapability of, of the, the human body as a part of nature. Um, he, had a, he had a very serious back injury shortly before starting to shoot Vital, and, it's, and it came back right as he started making the film. Um, and since he shot Vital on 35mm, and for the 35mm cameras are heavy, and Tsukamoto likes doing a lot of handheld camera work, and likes to do that himself, Vital was actually quite a tough shoot for him physically, but uh, mentally he was he was very happy to be uh, in this beautiful setting, surrounded by nature. Um, such a great contrast with uh, his life in Tokyo. And as I as I pointed out in other commentaries, he is truly a Tokyo native, born in Shibuya, near Harajuku Station. In fact, just behind Omote Sando, you know, the major high-class shopping street. So that's about as uh, as as Tokyo as you as you're going to get, you know. Certainly in terms of uh, uh, the post-war Tokyo, which he literally saw, literally saw arising around him as a child. So for him, uh, Okinawa uh, has, I guess, uh, for many years and decades, subconsciously been his accepted um, norm of of of. The, the complete other from this, you know, concrete city that he has always known as his home. Um, in Kotoko, it's also very much uh, that plays the nature plays the role of of tranquility, uh, balance, happiness. Um, Kotoko is in is in very good shape. Is calm happy when she's there and then it's immediate contrast when she returns to the city um, you know also she works at a real estate agency so she's she's even in her in her uh, professional life she is uh, intimately connected with with the city with uh, with uh, crown buildings with apartments and yeah, every time she comes back from the 
from uh, the, from Okinawa back to the city, the same old problems immediately pop up again. As we see here in her treatment of, of Tanaka, who is now seems to have become her, her life partner through his uh, insistence on uh, accepting her warts and all, just like uh, Snake of June. That's where Snake of June ended, and that is where Kotoko uh, continues. And of course, uh, the makeup effects, the exaggerated makeup effects, uh, immediately make us think of Tokyo Fist. Um, functioning, functioning very much the same way. You know, their exaggeration uh, expresses um, the depth of uh, of the character's uh, desire, the char the depth of his willingness to go through this. And uh, yeah, it starts with a, a it starts with a fork in the in in the hand, and then a fork in the other hand. And goes a bit off the rails, but at the same time, you know, if it's in, in, then it turns into a scene like this, this sequence, one shot sequence of of him just completely uttering in every way physically and verbally his dedication to her then it's kind of hard to say that uh, the, the exaggeration in the makeup effects detract from uh, from the effect of the film that's certainly not the case it's interesting also that uh, his his character Tanaka, played by Shinyatsu Kamoto, appears uh, exactly exactly one third into the film. So, and he also disappears at uh, two third points from the film, from the story, from the narrative. So that certainly suggests a very classic three act structure going on. So as uh, as extreme or experimental or very independent as Tsukamoto's films may often appear to be, um, he definitely has uh, mastered uh, the classic ways of making a film and telling a story. And uh, yeah, well, it's always good to know the rules before you deviate from them. Yeah, so we had a really good sh shot of uh, that set design of Kotoko's room. The use of the color, the garlands, the strings of lights that seem like uh, almost like good good luck tokens in a way. I mean, the color, the colors, and the style of the design um, is mirrored by uh, the sisters' family home in Okinawa, as well as in the the toys that her son, her little son Daijiro, plays with. So they're reminders of a certain uh, source of stability or happiness in her life 
being present after all, in spite of all the difficulties that she goes through. And uh, yeah, in terms of the color scheme, yeah, those sort of like candy, those candy colors, uh, slightly, slightly saturated, but not too much candy colors. Of course, the land, the Okinawa landscape, the green of the vegetation, the blue of the sea, um, the color of the sand. Working as a contrast, but a not too, too strongly uh, uh, emphasized contrast with the city. I mean, the city in Kotoko certainly is not as much a, a con grey concrete labyrinth as it is in, say, Bullet Ballet or in, in, uh, in Tetsuo 2 or Tokyo Fist. But there is, of course, that building, the building where uh, uh, Kotoko lives, where the film was shot, which looks like it was an, abend uh, an abandoned, uh, what they call a danchi, so a public housing um, a proje project essentially, um, which date back to the post-war period, uh, often built on the edges of cities in, in the first, like the first start of of suburbanization in Japan, where uh, basically low-income low housing. And these are by now, you know, 60, 50, 60 years after the fact are crumbling and are therefore increasingly abandoned and uh, from time to time pop up in films as uh, as, uh, as spooky places. I mean, look at uh, Hideo Nakata's film Dark Water. You know, very effective use of uh, an almost identical location. And all these buildings are more or less identical, no matter where in the country they uh, may have been built. They just came from the same blueprint. Uh, so identical to um, this location used in Kotoko. And of course it expresses something about uh, uh, Kotoko's standing in life and in society as a single mother trying to make ends meet. This is the best she can afford. So the, the normally, yeah, those, those tanchi are made of, of just plain and very old aging concrete and so in that sense um, Kotoko's particular sense of, of interior decoration like especially as you see in this shot completely um, modifies the impression that, that this kind of like old and cold concrete makes on the person living in it. So it's, a, it's in a sense also in that respect uh, the set, this, you know, this, the interior decoration is also a way for her to take control of her environment to the degree that she's capable of. And there's also at some, at certain points in the film, the color white, uh, which becomes uh, stronger towards the latter parts of the film um, where she, she sort of like blanks during a certain moment and the, the, the screen all around her goes white and that comes back of course in the white dress that she wears in the final scenes 
uh, set in a mental hospital where all the walls are also white and so on. So there's various uh, layers of, of color, uh, various color schemes uh, in, uh, in Kotoko, which in that sense is, is uh, a more complex than uh, simpler contrasts that were used in previous films of Tsukamoto. Uh, Snake of June, of course, having that blue monochrome, Tetsuo high contrast, black and white, same goes for Bullet Ballet. Tetsuo 2 and Tokyo Fist have the, the, the quite intense blue and red contrast. Um, the more colorful films before this were uh, Hiroko the Goblin, which was a, a fantasy movie with scenes set in, uh, in uh, you know, hellish places. Um, there was Gemini, which is said has a very carnivalesque kind of atmosphere. And, uh, and vital, of course, because of the, the Okinawa connection. And so, yes, if we didn't, if we didn't already know it as viewers, and uh, Japanese audiences would have known, of course, but Certainly, uh, during sequences like these, we s we realize that Coco is a professional singer and professional musician, um, and she's also credited with composing the music for this film. So, uh, which is a, a rare case of the absence of uh, of uh, Tsukamoto's regular composer Chuish Kawa. Coco, by the way, also uh, in addition to doing the theme song for Tsukamoto's film Vital also provided the theme song for uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's film Pulse, which is a very kind of, uh, poppy, strong, up-tempo, quite powerful, heavy guitar piece. As I mentioned before, Coco is not uh, typical typical for uh, uh, someone, a denizen of the, uh, the entertainment industry in Japan. Um, usually uh, the images of talent of any, of any type is um, usually uh, uh, very jealously protected by uh, the talent agency to which uh, the actor or singer or uh, performer um, belongs. Um, carefully monitored, uh, the kind of films they can play in uh, uh, are, are uh, you know, subject to restrictions, the kind of scenes they can appear in, the kind of characters they can play, the kind of clothes they can wear, uh, nudity often is absolutely out of the question, etc. So any anyone who is subject to that kind of regime would never have appeared in a film like Kotoko. Certainly would never have been, uh, you know, a, a, a fellow creative driving force behind it.
So we are now at exactly two-thirds of the film and uh, Tanaka is, uh, is about to disappear. Or at least we are about to realize that he has disappeared. Of course, the question can be, was he ever actually there? You know, because Kotoko, as a person who suffers from uh, visions and delusions, becomes a very unreliable narrator. Um, we can, of course, we can understand that the doubles he sees are unreal but that becomes more difficult with uh, uh, a fellow main character and then his sudden disappearance um, makes make us probably suddenly realize what uh, you know what the impact of Kotoko's uh, afflictions are on her daily life And from that point onwards, again, the old problems start to reappear in her life and she starts seeing doubles again. Speaking of the, the motif of the double, um, that uh, has appeared early, earlier, earlier in Tsukamoto's work as well, uh, notably in Gemini. Um, in which two twins that were separated at birth um, are reunited. They have grown up in very different social circumstances and um, the poor one comes to claim his birthright from, uh, from the rich one. And so that is a very similar division in, in the good double and the bad double that we see used here in Kotoko, and again uh, here in Kotoko it is used in a very real, everyday reality situation, uh, devoid of uh, and, you know, the kind of fantastical ambience that it had in Gemini, which was an adaptation from a story by Edogawa Rampo, of course Tsukamoto, one of Tsukamoto's favorite uh, authors. And Edogawa Rampo was um, an author who was strongly influenced by Edgar Allan Poe, and Edgar Allan Poe, of course, wrote what is perhaps the quintessential story of the double as, at, at the same time, perhaps, a, a supernatural phenomenon as well as um, uh, let's say a symptom of, of mental instability. And of course that story is William Wilson. Moments of those appearances of the, the doubles also, I think, tie, tie Kotko again back into Nightmare Detective, even though there were no, there was no great role for doubles in that particular film. But uh, those shots have that same sort of like nightmarish feeling um, that those the Nightmare Detective films obviously had.
So uh, yes, uh, connecting Kotoko to Nightmare Detective and uh, and uh, Gemini in that respect, uh, yeah, brings brings what was previously supernatural back to our everyday reality. And con the, as I said, then connects it further back to um, the works of Edgar Allan Poe and Edgar Allan Poe, you know, classic. The double is the cl classic literary device for expressing uh, mental confusion or mental deterioration. And uh, speaking of deterioration, she's Kotoko, as she now starts to reach like basically her lowest point greatest degree of, of, of confusion. Uh, Tsukamoto's trademark style is really becomes emphasized, you know, that, that's shaky handheld camera work, um, very rapid editing that he has used throughout his, his career and throughout his films and uh, turn out in Kotoko to lend itself, lend themselves very well to portraying mental imbalance. And then it's really, really interesting that at that point also the element of war suddenly makes its appearance in this film. Okinawa being such an essential characteristic part of, of the, this film of course has its World War II history, the Battle of Okinawa. Um, and I think that uh, here again there was a confluence of, of um, influences um, on Tsukamoto. That just briefly now was a, a shot of a, what seemed to be a politician saying essentially the kind of thing that uh, conservative politicians like to say. Um, Kotoko, uh, it's, it's in this sense preceded actually by Tetsuo the Bullet Man, um, leads into the war theme that is central to uh, fires on the plane as well as to killing. Um, the, the source of that is here. Tetsuo the Bullet Man, as the, the, the title already indicates is about you know the human the human body as a as as murder weapon as weapon of mass destruction as weapon of war um, further expanded very literally in in fires on the plane and killing where it's soldiers in world war ii and and samurai and this is something i'll certainly talk about in my commentary uh, for killing but it's here too um creates a strong expression of the, the, the lowest, you know, the most intense confusion um, and mental, mental imbalance um, of Kotoko herself. Uh, this scene, in a sense, kind of reminiscent of the, the Nazi werewolf scene from, uh, from American Werewolf in London now that, I, now that I'm watching it. Um, yeah, the criticism of, of uh, the graphic depiction of violence and death uh, in that particular scene, the shooting of the baby, 
um, as well as uh, very strongly um, this was part of the critical reception of fires on the plane um, you know that they accused Kamato of mostly turning turning a war movie into a gore movie um, but I think Kamato doesn't want to whitewash that aspect and certainly during a period having come right after um, the earthquake and tsunami and the nuclear accident in Tohoku uh, plus um, personal life again you know being a father losing his mother uh, there's a lot of there's a great sense uh, with the increase of the war theme in Skamoto's work um, a great sense of uh, we shouldn't waste what we have and which is so so incredibly valuable which is just our human human lives uh, and our connections with others most notably of course our our, our loved ones um, if there are um, politicians you know of course there's it, it ties in also with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's long-term goal of rewriting the Japanese constitution and particularly uh, getting rid of uh, the famous article 9 which uh, does not allow Japan you know which says Japan for renounces war and aggression um, these are all factors that um, that combine into the increased appearance of uh, of war related themes in Skamoto's work and because I think because he wants to show how valuable these things are that we are likely to lose if we if we go too far down that path um, he just doesn't he doesn't want to whitewash this you know he wants to show what it really means to uh, to flirt with uh, the position the possibility of, of going into armed conflict with perhaps desiring even the possibility of, of, of starting or taking part in armed conflict um, and what it implies when politicians play with such promises of you know the ability of, of using aggressive power and uh, just as he doesn't you know flinch from portrayals of mental illness in which that becomes a, a metaphor or a symbol Of course, the war, war as a, well, not as a, necessarily as a theme, but as sort of like a slumbering presence, has been there in his work in the past, uh, can be inferred. I mean, uh, in the, the, so let's say the films up to Snake of June, there was this idea of you know people are numbed by their everyday lives in the city and uh, the the comforts of their lives and uh, the, the the lack of contrast so that we no longer see this as positive and then of course he when he wants to wake them up and then the means he uses in those films is essentially violence violence injury and death you know the loss of a loved one is uh, is uh, uh, a major part in uh, quite a number of films such as bullet ballet for example Um, so Atsukamoto has said that yeah you could you could um, interpret that as being uh, 
like people uh, people's um, Un, un, unfamiliarity with with war. He, he suggests that the generation that grew up um, <clears throat> in wartime had that, that experienced the war, i.e., the generation of his parents, did not have this problem in their daily life. So it's the people who grew up after World War II that uh, have a tendency to not appreciate, to not value. All the all the, the richness uh, they they have as a result of, of living in peace. Um, but he has also said in interviews that you know that doesn't mean that he that he feels that we should have another war. So that's the slumbering presence of war um, in Tsukamoto's early work, and now he's come around to really emphasizing. Uh, emphasizing and thinking more about perhaps the implications of, of his earlier films, his earlier motifs, um, and emphasizing that no, this is definitely not a, a path we should be we should be following. We should not desire return to, to, to war, return to aggression on a national scale. These visions that she is going through currently are also really quite amazing, made with uh, literally no means. It's all cardboard and, and objects you can buy at any you know store on the, around the corner for next to nothing. But very expressive, especially because Kotoko, you know, believes she's she's killed her child. And so it's a, a children's world and a, a children's room, and as you see here, a cradle that form uh, the visual motif of a hallucination. It's a, almost well today we would probably think of this as a Michel Gondry like, you know, it's a very Swedish. <laughs> it's a Swedish sequence. Just to refer back to Be Kind Rewind. But uh, no less powerful uh, because of it, I would say. Incidentally, the, the, the little boy who plays her son Daijiro is almost... Here we have the white, the whiteout, so to speak. Never looks at the camera. This is really quite amazing. Normally, if you have child actors, they start, you know, as soon as a camera comes within their field of vision, they start staring at the lens. But especially small children of that age, but this little boy just almost almost never does that. Incidentally, I've spoken about a lot of the a lot of similarities with within Skamoto's own work with Kotoko. 
But there's also certainly a similarity here with Rom uh, Roman Polanski's film Repulsion. Which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And now that I think of it, I really should watch it again soon. But it has a lot of similarities in the in the premise of the very film, the, the, you know, the very premise of the film, the single young woman living in the city, um, becoming uh, you know, suffering hallucinations as part of a mental breakdown, um, living in a cramped apartment seeing her own environment sort of rebel against her. And that of course became a kind of a kind of horror movie. Well I wouldn't call Kotoko a horror movie, but it certainly has its share of uh, horrificness. So we've uh, now found Kotoko in the mental hospital and as you see again in this uh, sequence there is the leading color motif that is white even if it is faded white it's still white a dress uh, the male nurses uniform the building even in the raindrops that register as white even the handle of the umbrella. And interestingly, we go back into uh, a dance sequence. Not as if Kotoko uh, could be called a musical. I guess you can call it a musical if you wanted to. But these dance sequences always seem to come when she is uh, un untroubled. And yeah, the rain, of course, you know, the classic symbol of washing away troubles of all kinds. Cliched perhaps, but still effective. Especially after uh, the type of film that we have been watching until now. These uh, hospital scenes are also interesting because um, we don't clearly get a sense of how much time has passed in the in in between. You know, from that from that moment of whiteout, we still believe that she has uh, murdered her son, and therefore she that's why she's in the hospital. She's in the mental ward. Um, but of course, we are about to uh, make a few discoveries. Firstly, that quite a lot of time has passed. Um, um, that um, the young son, now much older, a teenager, 
is alive and well. Or at least, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, because Kotoko has constantly suffered, of course, from, uh, from hallucinations, we, we keep the possibility open in our minds that the teenage son is himself also a hallucination. Um, that makes the scene all the more powerful, certainly in the way it, 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 it unravels. It's a very simple scene, but a very powerful and very telling scene. And before that, again, sequence of, of singing. A very calm sequence of singing. And I revert back to Okinawa and uh, Sunset Beach. And here also in this shot, aside from the white, there is whiteness and there is green. Again, nature. She is surrounded by nature. So uh, that all suggests to us that uh, this is a film that actually has a, a, a more or less a happy ending. And that sense is going to be stronger, uh, strongest, I should say. Um, through the meeting with, with her son Daijiro and also uh, kind of brings back to us um, a realization that most likely she is not hallucinating now. The furniture is also white, which uh, incidentally uh, refers back to the furniture that was in her apartment, which is also wooden furniture that's been uh, whitewashed, painted white. So there he is. Discovery that he is not only alive and well, um, which makes us not only relieved as viewers, but also we marvel here really at the boy's innate strength, his intelligence, his kindness toward his mother, in spite of everything that, that happened. Very natural, spontaneous performance, too, by this young man. Look at the, the text that is written on his shirt. It's like an expression of, of the kind of character, the kind of personality he is. He's uh, he's uh, generous, um, much like uh, like Tanaka was generous, although in a very different, much more balanced, unthreatening manner.
Of course, the fact that uh, Tsukamoto uh, composes this scene largely in uh, separate, keeping the two separate in separate shots. I already pointed this out how he does that on the Snake of June, but he uses that in this particular scene up until the point where the boy leaves. Then they're both in the same shot. So that uh, that um, that uh, sort of like, uh, lets us doubt the veracity of him actually being in that room. That continues as we stay here now on Kotoko. And, and she moves to the window. Uh, this creates um, amazing suspense in this ending of this particular scene. Uh, from here, the shot out the window. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. Whether he's going to appear or not. Because if he appears, that means he was really there. If he didn't appear, then it would have, he would have been an hallucination. And if that was not sufficient proof of his realness, then his disappearance and reappearance in the much in the way that Kotoko used to do when she visited him in Okinawa certainly drives that home, his realness. Which really gives uh, the film's ending a great degree of satisfaction for us as viewers. You know, it's a real... We, give, we, we leave on a sense of relief after such a tough viewing experience. You know, we've come through it. And uh, we may not know Koko's future, uh, Kotoko's future, I should say. But it is clear that many of her anxieties of the past uh, are largely resolved. And that she is uh, much less burdened than she has ever been throughout the story of the film. And so, yeah, the closing credits uh, show that this was a yeah, true collaboration between Koko and Tsukamoto. Their names alternate there in the crew, start of the crew list. So that was Kotoko, another Tsukamoto film which clocks in at, uh, well, I'm about to say under 90. This one is just over 90 minutes and all the other ones are just under 90 minutes. Um, there's a lot of filmmakers out there that could use uh, his uh, economy, uh, his narrative economy as an example, given the, the bloated length of so many feature films these days. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I've, uh, this was not the easiest commentary to record, I have to say, uh, just as the film is not the easiest Tsukamoto film to watch, uh, but very worthwhile. So thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.